Welcome to another episode of the Conversations for Financial Professionals podcast, where we are shaping the next generation of financial advice. Today, we have Chris Stanley. Chris, you are the founding principal of Beach Street Legal, a law practice and compliance consultancy for investment advisors and financial planners. Your expertise includes legal advice, uh, compliance counseling related to federal and state securities laws, SEC rules and regulations, RIA mergers and acquisitions, investment management, compliance, RA registration, and general corporate legal matters. You've got your JD and your MBA from Santa Clara and your BA from Boston College, and you've been admitted to the state bars of California, Missouri, and the District of Columbia. Welcome to the podcast, my friend. I appreciate it, Dominique. Great to be here. And uh, yeah, we do all the fun stuff over here at Beach Street Compliance. And yeah. <laughs> all the black and white, the big, you know, the uh, all the regulations that take hours to read through, uh, you oh, disseminate yeah. that stuff into uh, palatable bites for us RIAs. I, I really appreciate that, man. <laughs> that, that's the goal. Yeah. And it's, it's funny, there's inevitably gray areas, but it is what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I first want to kind of like paint the history a little bit because there's a couple of things and correct me if I'm wrong here. So we got the Investment Advisor Act of 1940, that's kind of like the, let's call it the umbrella of the legislation around what regulated financial advisors are supposed to do. Like if you're actually charging for advice and you're an investment advisor. And then within that, there's all these little nuances about how you do this, how you do that. Specifically, what we'll talk about today is the marketing, because I think that's a big thing. But am, am I correct in kind of painting that? Is that's how it kind of works? Yeah, absolutely, especially at the federal level. So you can almost think of the Investment Advisors Act of 1940 as this umbrella regulation that applies to federally registered investment advisors or those individuals or firms that meet the definition of an investment advisor uh, under the SEC's rules. Yeah. The other important caveat I'll just mention is that because of just the general federalist structure of our, of our government, we have all of our different state regulations, their own securities acts, their own rules, so somebody that's either already a financial advisor or thinking of becoming a financial advisor, they not only have to contend with this overarching federal regulatory framework, but a bunch of different state regulatory frameworks as well. No, and that's always kind of funny. Like I didn't get that at the first time either. Uh, is you know, so I'm in Texas. Texas and Louisiana are those two states where you actually have to yep. notice file before you start, you know, uh, soliciting business for clients. So it's all those little things to know. And if you're still confused at this point, that's why you need to, you know, go talk to Chris, Beach Street Legal, make an appointment, and try to try to sort that stuff out if you're trying to start a firm. So we're going to talk about marketing today. I think um, one thing I want to know is like. And I say this all the time and, and not flippantly, but kind of just like, what's the deal? Like this 1940, this is a long time ago. This is like, why is it taking so long to update this freaking rule, man? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I wish I had the answer. What I, what I can say is that it's likely just the, the path of least resistance was to not do anything. Mm -hmm. And I mean, another good example of this is the fact that, I mean, federal rules still reference microfiche and microfilm as a way that advisors can purportedly keep records. I mean, I haven't looked at that since I was in the basement of my college library doing research from some sort of articles from the 50. But yeah, the point of view right. is that, you know, government entities aren't exactly notorious for being the first to market, the first movers. It's usually reactionary to demand or evolutions in the industry and from practitioners like yourself that 
are pushing the envelope to say, hey, look, you know, this needs to be addressed. This can't be the way that we're going to operate, uh, especially when so many other industries are allowed to use testimonials and have more freedoms in that regard. You know, so frankly, I think the advertising rule was on the docket for a while, but getting a lot of people to get on the same page and go through the bureaucratic approval process is not overnight. So yeah. I don't think there's any excuse for it existing as, as long as it did, but you know, it was, it was nice to see some movement that I think some advisors will appreciate in, in the long term. Yeah, and, and to, you said something that I, I wanna kind of tease out, right? So I always kind of envision legislation being made by obviously legislators, but they're kind of pushed by lobbyists or special interests. I mean, that's, it is what it is. And maybe they're like, there's been too much, let's just call it disunity in our industry where we couldn't really get on the same page, right? Where you got, you know, you got this whole fee-only movement, you got this fee-based movement, you got, you know, all these different factions within our industry, which probably didn't centralize under one thought about, hey guys, it will be really cool if we updated this. Can we, you know, come across the aisle or whatever the, the terminology is to kind of join together? Would you agree with that? Or like, what's your, what's your insights to, to that? No, I mean, I think that's absolutely fair. And I mean, unfortunately, there's a couple other examples of this. Um, what comes to mind is the new and evolving models for fixed fee or subscription-based financial planning advice which some states have been very antagonistic to and other states have been completely permissive to. Uh, on, on the mutual fund and, and fund uh, side of things, you had a push towards electronic delivery of shareholder materials. And you know, to your point on lobbyists, as you can imagine, if mutual funds are allowed to distribute a lot of things uh, electronically as opposed to in paper copy, the paper industry kind of got into the mix and said, whoa, 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 this is a bad idea for this, that, and the other reason. So unfortunately, there will be people that have very uh, specific interests that come out of the woodworks when they perceive a regulatory development that does not work in their favor. I mean, you even saw hints of that with regulation BI, regulation yeah. interest, things of that nature. So the, the, it's a good and a bad, right? It's good because everybody has a voice and can share their input, but that does can that does have the potential to slow down or unify the, the process, uh, especially when those special interest groups tend to, to get involved. Okay, all right. Well, let's dig into this because I got, man, I got so many questions. I, so one <laughs> night I'm, um, I'm uh, dealing with a light bout of insomnia um, and I happen upon, I don't know how I got to it, but anyways, I end up on uh, Kitsis blog and I see that you've done a guest article and it's it's not short, so it, it cured my insomnia. So thanks. <laughs> Absolutely welcome, and it's that's one of its side benefits. <laughs> so I'm reading through there, and I'm like, well, first of all, in my, my opinion, super thorough, well thought out, well organized, uh, really really great put together of uh, what I feel was something I was not going to read the black and white of, like even on a a, a slow day. Um, so I, you know, I hit you up on LinkedIn and I go, man, man, this would be really great to kind of talk about. So I, I think where I want to start, because this is obviously the scope of probably many splintered discussions, but if we're just kind of thinking about what the rule says, how it's different than what we had before, 
and then maybe some implications for how this turns about um, based on the timelines and the stuff that you know. So let's start with what the rule actually says as, as, to pose, as, to, as opposed to what was there before. Got it. Yeah, and I appreciate the, the kind words. And if you ever need a cure for insomnia, just head back to the URL. <laughs> we'll do, man. We'll do. <laughs> and the, the scary part is that this article only really dealt with half of the new marketing rule. Uh, there's a whole other half to the new marketing rule that deals with performance advertising. But again, you know, I don't want to put you to sleep two nights in a row per se. Um, but what um, what we're talking about here is essentially a consolidation of two existing rules under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. So on the one hand, you had what was previously known as an advertising rule. And on the other hand, you had what was known as a cash solicitation rule. And what the SEC did is effectively consolidate them into a single rule that's referred to as the marketing rule. And so the cash solicitation rule will be rescinded and done away with. It's not going to exist any longer. Any previous SEC guidance under that rule will effectively be moot. And so what we're now dealing with is the new marketing rule. And so the new marketing rule deals with what you would consider to be traditional marketing in the sense of websites, blogs, newspaper ads, et cetera, et cetera but it also folds in the component of uh, the solicitor rule in terms of the way that individuals are used to bring clients to an investment advisor. So what have traditionally been known as solicitors that are basically paid to bring clients in the door are now known as promoters. And for the first time, the SEC has basically said under our new marketing rule, no longer are testimonials categorically prohibited. They've been prohibited since day one of the marketing rule. It's been much to the chagrin of many advisors, but now that door has been opened. It's now pause not... right there. Pause right there. Yeah. Is that yeah. because, and from your, in granted, we'll be doing some editorializing here. So, you know, if you're listening, you know, don't, don't construe this as legal advice. Go, you know, do your diligence and your research because we're, we're having some commentary here. My, my, my question is, ha, has the reason for the, just like them forbading this whole no testimonials, is it primarily associated because, or maybe why was that? Like, why have they attached this no testimonials? Is it because of performance and you know investment advice, or is it because they want to kind of watch how people were getting paid? And I, I'm just confused about like why no testimonials. That just that blanket rule is really weirdly weird to me. Right. So the basic theory was that testimonials are per se misleading, that if somebody is basically saying something nice, uh, a former client, a third party, whatever about an investment advisor, that may inappropriately plant a seed in a prospective client's mind that, oh, this person had a representative experience with that advisor that is positive, therefore I should hire this potential advisor. And so back when the rule first came out and for you know, many decades thereafter, we didn't have the likes of Google reviews or Yelp or readily accessible um, validation tools that prospective clients could utilize to say, okay, I've seen this one testimonial that says positive things, but when I go to a Google reviews site, they're one star and everybody's just completely reaming this person. So like, how do I, how do I reconcile that? In yesteryear, they didn't have that benefit. They were relying on testimonials. And so therefore, regulators perceived it to be per se misleading. But realities have changed. Consumer information is more readily available. So it was time for there to be a reconsideration of permitting the, those types of things. 
And that makes total sense because, and I guess the other pushback I would have on this is, let's say, because this has happened in the last 20 years, where you get a financial uh, advisor, a planner, let's say a CFP like myself, but I choose to outsource my investment management to like Betterment or some other solution, some other mm -hmm. TAMP, and I don't even do that. So the testimonials associated with my firm are strictly around my financial advice and my financial planning sans investment advice. And it seems mm -hmm. like the rule was just assuming that any testimonial was about investment advice because we're an investment advisor. Is that, is that accurate? Well, and so this is one of the inevitable gray areas that's going to come up because I've encountered situations where financial professionals have affiliated businesses. Maybe they're a CPA, maybe they're an attorney, maybe they have a construction business, whatever the case may be, but they don't necessarily have separate social media profiles or a separate web presence per se for each distinct channel. So if somebody says something nice about the way that they prepped and filed taxes or the way that they gave them some sort of coaching services, that has had a historical tendency to kind of bleed over into the advisory mm. side of things, which has brought up the specter of prohibition. So I'm not saying the gray area is completely eliminated, but at least we have some more guidance as far as testimonials not being categorically prohibited on the advisory side of the equation. Okay, okay. All right, cool. Um, I interrupted you finishing the whole difference, but I don't know if you finished that or not. <laughs> no, I mean, it, it is unfortunately or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, the rule is released over multiple hundred pages. So it's just going to be impossible to succinctly summarize it. But the, no. the general gist Fair. is we have the consolidated rule, testimonials are prohibited. There's still categorical prohibitions and rules and disclosures, as you might imagine, that you have to follow. And so that's thematically the general intent of the rule. And then as you'll see from the article, you really have to start peeling back layers to say, okay, if I want to do this, what do I have to comply with? If I want to go with option B, what do I have to comply with? Yeah. And what's still categorically off the table? Yeah. So yeah, I, I don't, I don't want to put anybody asleep on, on this uh, you know, recording here today, but, um, but that's the high level overview. No, you know, you say something, you, you mentioned compliance. So let's go there. Cause I, I see both sides. I've been an advisor, obviously, um, and I see that side. And and I'll be honest, you know, most of the time we we probably give compliance a hard time with what we can say, what we can do, and all this other kind of stuff. Testimonials and social proof aside, right? Let's just put that in a different bucket from now. For now, let's just talk about, you know, I want to, you know, I want to do this podcast, for instance, right? And I'm in a bigger firm, and they're like, okay, so what are you going to say? Let me see the outline. What points are you going to go through? And you're like, I want it to be organic, right? So you do all this stuff. So I. As I became a firm owner and I became my own chief compliance officer, I realized that when it's just one person or a few people or a handful of people, it's not that hard of a job from a compliance standpoint on what gets out to the public. Like you got a little bit more control, but when you're talking about thousands of reps, like you have to manage to the lowest common denominator and you probably have to be a little bit more stricter than you are in a smaller firm um, I wonder if you can kind of speak to that because I want to, you know, for the people that are in compliance, like I want to give them a little break because I mean, that could be a harder job if you got a lot of people in the firm, right? Yeah, no. And as far as regulating towards the lowest common denominator, I mean, I've, I've seen it. And frankly, at times it's, it's hard to blame compliance officers and compliance departments for that approach, especially if they've gotten burned before from trusting, but not verifying 
or kind of giving people the benefit of the doubt. And, you know, different firms have different risk appetites, frankly. So part of the other potentially complicating factor when you're dealing with larger firms is if they are uh, either a joint investment advisor and broker dealer, or if they have an affiliated broker dealer and for the individual advisors within them, are they a registered rep of the BD side? Are they investment advisor rep of the IA side? And if a broker dealer is in the mix and you have this whole other world of FINRA rules and regulations, which are often more complex and strict and specifically spelled out, as opposed to SEC and advisor rules, which tend to be more principles-based and broad-based and therefore more permissive. So to your point, you know, when you become a firm owner or you're within a smaller firm, you can be a lot more dynamic and quick moving and you know, you're your own CCO at that point. And so you don't necessarily have to regulate to that lowest common denominator. Uh, what I will say is that if you're in a bigger firm or you're contemplating joining a bigger firm, you'll have compliance policies and procedures. But I've been in CCO in my prior life. The best course of action is to start a conversation sooner rather than later and say, hey, I wanna start a podcast I want to utilize testimonials. I want to do X, Y, and Z. What do I have to do to make sure that your job is easier and I can, you know, fly through this approval process? And that is often the better course of action than going and doing something and investing a lot of time and energy, bringing it to the compliance department only for them to say, no, you got to change this. You got to adjust that, or you can't even do this at all. So just having those conversations can really go a long way. No, I like that. I was going to ask you what are best practices because you know, and I may have told people this wrongly because of where I am. And I think you make a good distinction from the BD side and the IA side. And for those that are listening, you know, broker dealer world is way different than um, let's call it independent uh, advisor or RIA. So just go do your research on that uh, or or book a consultation with Chris and maybe you can explain it to you. But I guess the point is, you know, I've always told people it's not necessarily, especially on independent side, it's not necessarily the, the letter to the law. It's more principles based, like you said. Like, so like having a procedure in place, like this is what we do on social media. These are the platforms we're on. These are the type of post or here's a post calendar of everything that we've done. Having that in place is so much better than just blurting out stuff or just doing particular things. So like rather than the, the minutia of what actually you're posting, what is your guidelines for doing social media on the platforms you're going to be on is a better thing to kind of work towards versus anything else. Would you, would you agree with that? Or maybe you can pick apart that statement. No, absolutely. I mean, your, your compliance policies and procedures, your compliance manual, what have you, that's the foundation upon which your firm is built from a compliance perspective. And so from an examiner perspective, whether it's a state examiner or the SEC, one of the first things they're gonna do or, or just a common low hanging fruit item that they're gonna look at in the course of an exam is to say, okay, what do their compliance, what does this firm's compliance manual say that they should be doing? Uh, what sort of documentation does the firm have to prove that that's actually what they're doing? Uh, what do their disclosure documents like their ADV part 2A, their part 2B, what does that represent to the public and prospective clients that the firm is actually doing? And then, what does the contract with the client say that the firm is contractually bound to do? And then what is the firm actually doing in reality? So you have to make sure that all of those things are on the same page and speaking the same language. Because if your compliance manual says X, your agreement says Y, and you disclose Z, 
and you're just all over the map, like yeah. that's really going to be problematic. So absolutely compliance manual is the base and then build off of that to just make sure everything is in line and that you're acting as a fiduciary and disclosing things appropriately. Yeah, yeah. So let's get let's get back into the rules. So I, my own take on this, so this is my 20th year in the industry, half of the time I've been client facing. I would imagine that although, and I hate to pick on these guys and gals, but although the people at, you know, the UBS is the Merrill's, the Wirehouse channel, they're going to get super excited by reading something like this. But for the name, for the reasons that we just mentioned, it, it might be trying to like turn the Titanic a little bit because there's a, there's a lot of reps. There's a lot of different layers to look through when you're thinking about, I'm going to let Joe Smith at Merrill Lynch now start talking about how, or let his clients start talking about how well a job he's done for mm -hmm. them. I would imagine that this rule, and maybe you can talk about timelines and whatnot in, in your answer. I would imagine this rule is probably going to be rolled out to smaller firms with on the independent side with all this stuff that you just named the best practices in place versus like a larger firm. That would just be my own guess there. That's a really interesting question that I think a lot of people are going to be interested to see how this plays out, right? Um, and just to maybe just to cover the timing of it and the sequencing real yeah. brief. So uh, the rule was approved by the SEC, but it hasn't become effective yet. The effective date is May 4th of this year, 2021. Uh, and so that's the first date that somebody can start to comply with the new rules and conceivably use testimonials. However, the mandatory compliance date, uh, the time where firms have to comply with the new rule is not until the fall of 2022. So there's an 18 month compliance period where the SEC is not expecting people to change things overnight. I mean, this is a significant rule overhaul. So they're basically saying, hey, you can start to comply on May 4th, but if you don't, if you need more time to get your ducks in a row, you have until fall of 2022 to do so. So just from a timing and sequencing perspective, I think that's important. Yeah. The other thing I'll just mention also is that it's important to remember that this rule is just for registered investment advisors with the SEC. So there are thousands of individual investment advisors registered at the state level, and they are not necessarily covered by this rule of development unless their state just defers their marketing and advertising rules to the SEC. Which remains to be seen, right? Like you don't know until, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. And okay. I mean, as long as it took the SEC to overhaul and make changes, I mean, now we're gonna have to deal with states that are probably incrementally gonna be making changes. Some may not, some may, some will probably be fast moving. Others may come out with a entirely new rule that's different from the SEC. So it's, it'll be interesting. But to get back to your question about larger firms versus smaller firms, I tend to concur that, especially for larger firms that tend to have more affiliations, whether it's a BD or other kind of moving pieces, it's probably going to have to go through committees and reviews and risk assessments. You're going to have to build out policies and procedures and do this, that, and the other thing. So unless one of those larger firms really wants to be a market leader and is really going to dedicate a lot of time, energy, and resources and has a high risk appetite, it might be some time before we see those larger firms turn the corner and start seeing you know, celebrity endorsements or paid testimonials or this, that, and the other thing. I could be proven wrong there, but I, I tend to agree with your assessment. Smaller firms, again, they can be more, they can be quick. They, I mean, their compliance manuals are going to be a third of the size of the Merrill Lynch's and you know, Morgan Stanley's of the world. 
And if they're their own CCO, I mean, the buck stops with them. So if they want to use testimonials and they're comfortable with it, then you don't have to go through 20 committees just to get that decision to be made. So I think in, a, in an interesting sense, those state firms are going to be partially carved out. So like the smallest of the firms are potentially carved out. It'll be that middle tier of firms that are SEC registered, but not the institutional size firms that you'll probably will see the most initial movement from, is my guess. Sometimes I'm asked, hey, Dominique, what is Jumpstart? And it is the place, my friend, where you can grow into the next generation financial professional. But there are a couple of places of engagement along the way. First, there's the free Facebook group. That's right, it's free. This is a place for like-minded individuals like yourself to be able to chime in, ask questions. There's no dumb questions. It's an excellent way to build your network and you're gonna get all types of perspectives from different people. Next, you can level up to a career consultation, which is me and you one-on-one -on -one to pick my brain. There's specific things going on in your journey that you might want me to answer. And it's gonna be so jam-packed in this session, I'm even gonna send you a recording of our conversation so you can reference it in the future. And when you're ready, my friend, ready to make that leap, the professional development program is for you. This is two decades of my experience that you get to leverage in a step-by-step -step program format that allows you to take the things that you need, pause, start again. You get to do it with a cohort so there's other people in there. You get to share uh, along with their journeys. And this is all designed to help you make the leap. At the end of this program, you will be equipped to find the career in financial services that is right for you. For information on any of these programs or offerings, make sure you send me an email at hello at jumpstartcoachinglab.com. Let's get back to the conversation. So I wanna play, I wanna gamify this a little bit because we have, um, we have put some pretty heavy um, language uh, in legal mumbo jumbo on people in this uh, particular uh, podcast recording. So I want to talk about do's and don'ts in the context of how this rule may play out, right? So I know this is going to be hypothetical, but like I want to like maybe position it as, okay, what if I was going to say this, Chris, like what in the light of the new rule, what, what would that kind of look like? And, and we can kind of go from there. Is that cool? Yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. All right. So let's say um, we have a client that... Uh, well, actually, I'm, uh, let me, I'm, I'm doing this off the cuff, sort of. So let me, uh, let me recant. Let me go back. Let me make it. Let me start. Okay. I can guarantee that your terms will be above 10%. I'm saying that as a CFP at DJH Capital Management to a prospective client. If I say I guarantee that your, current, your returns will be above 10%, is that problematic? Yes. So that would okay. give most compliance officers a minor heart attack. Uh, <laughs> The general thing to keep in mind is there are there are general anti-fraud prohibitions built in the SEC rules. So the SEC basically says you can't say anything that's misleading amidst a state material information or is a fraud or deceit on the public. And guaranteeing performance, guaranteeing returns very squarely fits into that category. Okay, so new rule or not, just don't even go there. What if yes. uh, what if hypothetically, what if one of my clients? Uh, said, man, you know, as I've been with Dominique for X amount of years, and I've always had above, you know, Y percentage in my returns. Is that the so same thing? It, it's pretty much going to be the same thing with a okay. caveat that if you can soften that language, as far as I've always had this particular investment return, 
um, that could have some wiggle room to it. So in other words, if the client was instead to say, to say I've for the last 10 years have had consistently exceptional service levels or his attention to detail is fantastic, he's, he's extremely responsive, et cetera, et cetera. All of those superlatives would seem to be fine when you do get into more performance specific information, that's where it gets a little bit more thorny. And that's potentially what brings in the other half of the new marketing rule that just deals with performance. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, performance reporting or performance touting still is a bit problematic. Okay. Uh, I've seen, and this may be scary, but in 20 years, I've seen a lot. So uh, <laughs> You're I've, 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 I've seen a statement very similar to this. Uh, where the advisor was saying something like this to clients, not necessarily potential clients. There's so little risk that I'm invested in whatever investment as well. Oh, well, so generally speaking, uh, it's impossible. This goes back to the whole past performance is not indicative of future returns. Um, and if there's a particular investment product or maybe a particular mutual fund or ETF or investment that somebody wants to talk about, those types of investments are always accompanied by some sort of risk disclosure document. Mm -hmm. And they will always spell out in great detail. And frankly, I think in a little bit too, uh, too much legalese, a lot of the risks that are pertinent to particular topics. Um, as it relates to advisors that maybe uh, invest alongside their clients, they use the same investments, the same approach, et cetera, that still doesn't mitigate the risk. If you're investing in the securities markets, there's gonna be ups, there's gonna be downs, nobody can predict the future. Um, so those statements still would make compliance officers bristle quite a bit. Yeah. It sounds like that, you know, in the, the way I would be using these is pretty much the way, you know, should I choose to start using client testimonials based on what you're saying in my wealth management firm, my thought would be using them pretty much the same way that I use them on my consulting business side, which is basically talking about me, the person or the particular uh, program or service that this person has got. Like you're saying, you know, using some of the, you know, his level of detail or the level of tension that I've gotten. I've had a really great experience with working with Don. Would be staying in that level versus going towards the performance. And I, and I, I, I get why investment advisors, I work for one, I get why they want to talk about the performance. But if we just zoom out a little, the performance is what it is, right? It, I mean, that is a means to an end for you to meet the client where they're trying to go. And really their experience should be what you're talking about, not the tactic strategy or vehicle that you use to give them that experience. Those are just my thoughts. No, I, I would agree. And I mean, part of, and this is me kind of taking off the Chris Stanley legal compliance hat and just my, my own two cents, but you know, if you're going to tout performance, it's a double-edged sword. So you could be great and it could be very helpful in positive times when there's a lot of returns to be captured, et cetera, et cetera. But there's the other side of the sword where if markets are down, returns are down, and you're really relying solely on that, it's also going to be problematic. So I think that's where a more broad-based reliance on your service level, your personality, the types of attention to detail, the overall financial planning picture, like all the other things that you're doing um, would cause somebody not necessarily to solely rely on performance as the only means to evaluate a financial advisor. No, I would agree. There, so there's actually a train on which I want to go because you brought up something with, with that last answer. Um, I want to think about 
for the, hmm, how do I want to say this? So I'm thinking that financial planners are largely going to, people that like to focus on financial planning, like holistic, comprehensive financial planning, maybe they outsource the investments, maybe they just don't think of it, you know, as the only end-all be-all type of deal inside the engagement with the client. And I'm wondering that a lot of people would just look at this and go, eh, not that big a deal. But I think this can actually be a really good way for good planners to get what they do out there in the public if they use this rule right. And I'm wondering if you can kind of give some, some guidance on that. I know you've talked about kind of best practices or what you would say, but you know, I can see a lot of people that would use this rule that really don't need to be using this rule because <laughs> just, what, what they're doing is not, doesn't need to be publicized. But there are some really good planners out there. I think they're going to look at this and they're going to go, man, this is a lot of language. Never mind. But it's like, no, no, you really need to hone in on it. So maybe can we point to a couple of things that you would suggest for them? Um, and maybe this even involves with, you know, um, finding a compliance specialist like yourself to help them implement what they would want to do from a broader discussion. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. And again, this is my own two cents for whatever it's worth. But yeah, I think advisors will want to avoid the shiny object syndrome in the sense that like, oh, there's this new rule, there's this new freedom. Uh, my neighbor, my other people in my study group are going to use testimonials, I should too. And I don't think that that to your point is necessarily the best use of all advisors time if it doesn't fit in with their overall growth strategy, their marketing approach kind of the look and feel and vibe that they're trying to give from their practice. So I think really the first step is to, to do some self-analysis and, and to say, okay, is this even a tactic from a marketing perspective overall that I want to employ? Uh, and then if that is the case, uh, to go down the route of deciding, well, what bite-sized chunks should I focus on first? You know, do I want to just focus on how do I incorporate Google reviews or Facebook reviews or LinkedIn endorsements? You know, what, what's my platform? Where do my people tend to come from? And so really analyzing what client sources are, where people are, are finding your firm, like maybe that's the niche area you can focus on for the time being, rather than trying to swallow the ocean and get testimonials from all your clients and post them here and there and, you know, make your life overly complicated. So my general recommendation would be to perhaps do a staged in approach and maybe try it out in certain particular areas and do limited releases to see, is this something that I can work with? Am I actually getting benefit out of? And that could potentially be a way to not only just prevent yourself from going too far too fast, but also making sure that you're getting the ROI from testimonials to justify the compliance procedures, the disclosures, potential agreements that you're gonna have in place, et cetera, et cetera. No, I think that's a really, really, really thoughtful approach because I, I would agree. I think some people are going to hear, and I've already been having conversations about, you know, with friends in the industry about that. And like, what do you think about this? And I'm like, I think at the, at the end of the day, it needs to fall in line of your vision and your philosophy of your firm and right. you know, how you think about things, like you just said. So there will be some instances in where, you know, for instance, like if you're a firm, you're already getting clients to give you referrals already, like this is a, you're potentially turning on another spigot of how people can get uh, or come to your firm and start working with you. I mean, and if you're fine with what you already got, then, you know, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Right. So I, I think um, you, you bring up some really good points there. So 
let's talk about like maybe some 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 suggestions if somebody's listening to this and they're like man this is really great stuff chris sounds like a really knowledgeable guy how, how do they get in contact with you i appreciate that again i'm, I'm at beachstreetlegal.com you can find me at beachstreetesq on twitter my email address is on my website so feel free to just contact me directly i love working advisor with advisors my focus is on reas and those that are thinking become reas so if I can be of any help, uh, whether as it relates to this rule or otherwise, love to have a conversation. And if I'm not the right fit, I'd love to find somebody that is. Perfect, perfect. Well, now you know, uh, this this podcast, obviously, Chris, is uh, to empower tomorrow's financial professional with tools to serve their client at the next level. And in that context, what uh, word or words of wisdom would you leave with them? I mean, I would lead with don't be scared of compliance, but don't give it short shrift in the sense mm -hmm. that um, there can sometimes be this specter of, oh, I don't wanna start my own firm or I don't wanna do anything too risky on the compliance front because I just don't even know where to begin. And it, it is definitely manageable uh, if you take the time to understand it or you talk with a third party professional that can help distill these long, unnecessarily complicated and convoluted rules into specific terms that apply to your firm. Um, and on the flip side of the equation, I would say for those that are really wanting to hit the gas pedal with testimonials, just make sure you do it the right way. You know, look before you leap. You don't want to get yourself in a bad situation where you weren't crossing your T's and dotting your I's before you introduce a new um, aspect to your marketing program. So um, it's that, that happy medium, that happy balance, which can get firms a long way. And that's where I've seen most of my clients have their success. No, I, I would agree with it. I'm going to give you a personal endorsement here. So we, you and I, we've done some work together in the past, and I don't know exactly what the package of the service was called, but like I, I went through this update of my documents. I got every, all my ducks in a row based on your recommendations. And then last August, July 2020, I had a desk audit. Passed with flying colors. Like I, I didn't even feel like, like everything was easy. Like now it was a little tedious with the, the, the auditor I had because they kept on asking for the same thing over and over again, but we, we ended up uh, getting that out. But the point is, is I felt totally prepared. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of advisors have this, uh, to what you said, they're just like this compliance boogeyman that right. they're afraid of that in actuality, it, it hampers their ability to do the best for their clients. But when you know that what you have is correct, and then granted, yeah, you might, somebody might make inquiries on it, but if you have the information or you, you have an explanation for it um, based on your policies and procedures, there's usually not an issue. So uh, kudos to you for uh, your, your knowledge and your expertise and, and your ability to get people over the hump. No, I appreciate that. And I mean, frankly, as the firm owner, I mean, you're the one in the driver's seat, you're doing the bulk of the work, the heavy lifting, the decision-making, I mean, the buck stops with you. So the fact that you got through that exam with flying colors is frankly a testament to you as well. So uh, happy to be a, a very small part of that, but uh, you know the, the burden rests on your shoulders. So well, well done. Appreciate it, man. Appreciate you. Well, I thank you for stopping by and uh, enlightening us on this new era for financial advisor marketing with this SEC marketing rule. And hopefully, we will see a lot of great change in the industry from this. So thanks stop, for stopping by, Chris. Appreciate it, Dominique. Have a great day. All right, bye bye. Hey there. I really hope you enjoyed this conversation. Before we go, just a few things. The best way to retain what you just learned is to do more than just listen. First, you need to write down your most important takeaway, and then you need to give yourself a deadline to apply it. For bonus points, you might also let someone hold you accountable to that deadline. Also, remember the only way more people will know about this podcast is if you share it. 
You can do that by sharing a link to this episode on your social media or by leaving a review on iTunes so that it reaches a wider audience. I'd appreciate if you took the time to do either or both. And finally, if you'd like to join my free community to learn more about how you can become a next generation financial professional, please text me at 214-544-9226. I love to hear from you and point you in the right direction. Bye for now until our next conversation.